Merry Christmas, Maranatha. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, as we sing, Holy Night, O Night Divine, remind us that it was holy, it was divine because of your Son. We sing that because of your Son. And we thank you, Father, once again for this privilege, for this privilege to gather together as your people to remember the birth of your son. We ask, Lord, that you would help us now that as we look to your word, remind us that your word is true, it is living, and help us to hear, and not only hear, but would your spirit help us to become doers of your word. We thank you, Father, once again for this opportunity, this privilege, and we accept these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Maranatha, you know what's very embarrassing? Uh, when you read papers you wrote a long time ago, or in my case, when I read my own sermons from a long time ago. And I wanted to share a sermon intro that I wrote back in 2015, eight years ago. It was a youth retreat, December, actually probably just a couple of days later, and the theme was deeply rooted. Youth, what are some things that come to mind when we think of the words deeply rooted? Trees, plants, quest love, the drummer from the roots, the band that plays for late night with Jimmy Fallon. All of us here are rooted in something. What you're rooted in will reflect who you are and what you value the most. What you're rooted in will direct what we think about and what we spend our time doing. And just in case you want to cite, uh, you know, that sermon uh, intro right there. This is probably the only time I'll ever uh, have my name put on something. Um, well, when I preached this many years ago, I didn't think my intro was that bad, but I still shake my head in embarrassment because I vividly remember all the blank faces of the youth. All their faces were blank, when I mentioned Quest Love, the roots, they had no idea who they were. So the fact that you guys laughed, I appreciate that. Right? As embarrassing as this was, you get a general idea of where I was headed. I wanted to help the youth consider where their roots were, and that ultimately, they must be rooted in Christ. My intro was there to set up the rest of the sermon. And it's no different with our passage this morning. Although Mark's gospel narrative is the only gospel narrative that does not include an account of Jesus' birth, I do think it is important for us to consider in this Christmas season. As we think about the identity of Christ, as we think about who Jesus is, and what we see here in today's passage is Mark introducing several different characters in the beginning. And with each character, he's zeroing in on one main point. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. The Christ who was born over 2,000 years ago, Emmanuel, God with us, he is truly divine. And we start with the author himself, Mark. Verse 1 says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We hear the word gospel so often. Gospel-centered churches with their gospel-centered values, with their gospel-centered music. And it's a word that's so frequently used, sometimes without much, much thought, 
And I think there can be a lot of confusion about what the gospel actually is. And you may have heard that the gospel is also known as good news. But it's not an exclusively Christian term. In ancient pagan cultures, it was a word that was used to declare military victory. So when a nation would win a war, they would go from town to town, city to city, and spread the gospel, the good news of victory. But Mark isn't referring to military victory here. He's referring to news that is much more significant, that has eternal consequences for those who receive it and for those who reject it. And Mark wants to make it undeniably clear that the beginning of the gospel, the origin of the good news, it's completely centered on one person, Jesus Christ. As one commentator writes, Jesus is the full embodiment of the good news. So I would summarize the gospel in this way. God saves sinners through Jesus. God saves sinners through Jesus. And of course, there's so much more that can be said. So much more theological nuance that can be played out. But the good news is that God saves sinners through Jesus. And if you're sitting here this morning not trusting in this news, that God saves sinners like you through Jesus, I urge you to listen very carefully. Know that your greatest need is to be in right standing and right relationship with God. And know that your good works can never be enough. But also know that you are never beyond God's power to save. This gift of salvation that we don't deserve, it can only be found in Christ alone, in Jesus alone. And church, as people who've been saved by this very grace, I encourage you to remember these very truths, to give thanks. As basic as these truths may sound, we are never beyond them. We will never get to a point when we don't need to remember them anymore. We must remember this. Give thanks that God saves sinners like you and me through his son, Jesus Christ. And what Mark begins to do is he connects the gospel. As he connects the gospel with the person of Jesus Christ, he adds another description of his identity. Jesus Christ is the son of God. He's not just truly human, one who came to earth and took on flesh, but he is truly divine, the one and only Son of God. And this is foundational for the rest of Mark's gospel narrative because it's Jesus' divine nature that gives him the authority to send out his disciples, to control the winds and the waves, to heal the sick, to feed the thousands, to forgive sins, and to teach about God's kingdom. His identity fuels his authority. And verse 14 wasn't read, but if you look in your Bibles, you can notice a subtle but very important change in wording. Verse 14 says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. In verse 1, 
Mark writes the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here in verse 14, he writes the gospel of God. And I believe this is intentional. He's equating the gospel of Jesus Christ with the gospel of God, emphasizing right from the get-go that Jesus is God. So we see Mark, the author himself, emphasizing this truth that Jesus is God. And as we move on to verses 2 through 8, we see the second group of characters, the prophets, specifically Isaiah and John the Baptist. Verses 2 and 3 read, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Verses 2 and 3 are referenced to Isaiah 40, as was read earlier. And Isaiah was a prophet who lived 700 years before the coming of Jesus. And he lived during a time when the nation of Judah, God's people, they offered up meaningless sacrifices and they committed injustices over and over again. So it became routine for them, for God's people, to turn their backs on God. And all of this led to the need for Isaiah's pronouncements of judgment through the Assyrians and the Babylonian exile. But in the midst of these prophecies of judgment... God spoke a word of hope through Isaiah. And it's in this chapter, Isaiah 40, when these declarations of judgment, they turn into words of encouragement for the discouraged people. And God encourages people by promising that he would send someone to save. And as we read in Isaiah 45, it's through this someone that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And we know from our vantage point, we know that all of this is pointing to the one who will save the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Whenever we read passages like this, we should be reminded that what God plans will always come about. Old Testament references encourage us to remember that God's plan, it can't be thwarted. So whenever we are called to look to the past in the scriptures, whether it be 700 years, as was the case with Isaiah, or his plan of salvation that was set before the foundations of the world were put into place, as we read in Ephesians 2, we should remember that whatever God plans, it will always come about. There is no stopping his plan. And that should be a great encouragement for us as believers. And we see that 700 years later, after this prophecy, that promised messenger who would cry out in the wilderness and prepare the way, that messenger was John the Baptist. Mark 1, verses 4 to 8. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with a camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
John the Baptist was the first prophet called by God since Malachi 400 years before. And his miraculous birth is detailed in Luke 1. But what's key in helping us understand what's going on in our passage is Luke 1, 16 to 17. And in this passage, we see Gabriel, the angel of God, speaking and comforting a very troubled father, Zechariah, John's father. And the angel says this, and he, John, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And this is exactly what John the Baptist would grow up to do in the wilderness near the Jordan River. This is exactly what he would do. And commentator Jason Mayer notes that there's great significance for where John's ministry took place. The Jordan River was a significant landmark. It was not just a river. It was a border between the wilderness and the promised land. The people crossed it when they first reached the promised land after escaping Egypt and wandering in the wilderness. Now the Jews are receiving a call to leave their place of spiritual exile and cross the river again into the wilderness as the place of preparation from which God will deliver them into a new promised land. But this wasn't an uncommon practice. Even in the first century, Jewish prophets led followers to reenact the crossing of the Jordan River in hopes of anticipating Israel's liberation from the Roman Empire. But it's key to recognize the deliverance that John pointed to, it was not a deliverance from the Romans. And this is further signified by John's dress and diet. These Jewish followers, when they would see John in his camel hair and leather belt, eating locusts and honey, they would immediately connect this prophet to the prophet Elijah. And we see this in 2 Kings verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria, and he lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go, inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us, and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, It is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And he said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, 
It is Elijah the Tishbite. We see in this passage the wicked king of Israel, Isaiah, following in his father's wicked footsteps. And he continues to lead in disobedience. As God's representative among his people, he was supposed to lead by example, but he failed miserably. So what we see here is Elijah being sent by God to speak judgment to this king because of his failure. And as promised, we see John coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. And like Elijah, he pointed people to the Lord. John, he proclaimed, he preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And like I mentioned earlier, unlike these other pseudo-Jewish prophets, John called people to the Jordan not because of a political problem, but because of a spiritual problem. It wasn't a political problem, but it was a spiritual problem. And all of John's ministry served as preparation for the way of this coming Lord. And John, he recognized that. He humbly recognized that Jesus, the one who was coming, was that much greater that John himself was not worthy enough to stoop down and untie sandals. This was a task reserved for servants. And John is saying, I can't even do that. And the comparison doesn't just stop there. John's ministry as a baptizer, it's connected with water. But he fully recognizes that the one who's coming, Jesus, his ministry will be connected to the Holy Spirit, that much greater. And what we see all throughout the Old Testament is that it's only God who could bestow the Holy Spirit. So what we see here is that both the prophets, Isaiah and John the Baptist, they were affirming the same truth. The one who was coming was Jesus, and he is Lord God himself. But it's not just Mark and the prophets. As we continue in our passage, we see the third group of characters in verses 9 to 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. In these verses, God and the Holy Spirit, the other two persons in the Trinity, they're introduced. But before we even get to that, it is important for us to consider Jesus' baptism. Jesus was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So we have to ask, why did Jesus get baptized? Why was there a need for him to be baptized? If he's sinless, why go to John to be baptized? When we think of the word repentance, I think often the images that come to mind are people carrying picket signs, usually in dark red and black, saying the end is near, repent. But biblical repentance is much bigger than that. New Testament professor Jonathan Pennington writes this. Biblical repentance is broader and tuned differently. The call to repent 
is an urgent invitation to reorient our values, habits, loves, thinking, and behavior according to a different understanding, one rooted in the revelation of God's nature and coming reign. In short, repentance means become a disciple. Jesus, he repents not in the sense of turning from sin, whereas our repentance necessarily includes this, but in the sense of dedicating himself to following God's will fully on earth. So in this sense, Jesus repented, yes, but not of sin because he was sinless, but so that he could be fully obedient to his Father's will, so that he could fully identify with every sinner that he would save. And I think this is why baptism for believers is so important and commanded by the Lord. It is a picture of the gospel. Jesus was baptized as a sign of his wholehearted obedience and were to follow his example. But we know that Jesus is much more than an example because baptism, it points to a deeper spiritual reality that we're baptized into him. We are in union with our Savior and Lord. Going under the water, it symbolizes dying with Jesus, and coming out of the water symbolizes being raised to new life with Jesus. So I don't want to underestimate the importance of baptism. It is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Now as Jesus comes out out of the water after his baptism, we read that the heavens, they're torn open and the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove. And we read about God's affirmation of Jesus. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And one commentator writes this about the heavens being torn open. Some people use the phrase, all hell is breaking loose. But the picture here, it's so much better. Mark is saying that all heaven is breaking loose. In other words, the time has finally come for the triune God, for God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, to put into action the salvation of sinners and the renewal of all creation. And like I mentioned earlier, there's absolutely nothing that can stop, stop this plan. Absolutely nothing. And I try to think of an illustration, and this is going to fall short in many ways, but I hope you get the point. It's like when I used to play Uno, the card game, with, I used to be a New York City teacher with my first graders. And I'd keep some of the kids during recess, and we'd have lunch together, and we would play Uno together. It was like their special reward, spend time with Mr. Yang. And during lunchtime, I'd get to know them, and then I'd pull out Uno, and they'd be super excited. And being the nice guy, I would let them win a couple games. But these students would start to trash talk. Mr. Yang, you got nothing on me. Oh, Mr. Yang got nothing on us, right? And then I would tell myself in my head, it's time. <laughs> it's time. Then I would just start, draw twos, draw fours, skip, 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 right? The kids would have absolutely no chance. No chance. And once again, I know it falls short, but you get the point. There is no stopping this plan 
of the triune God to save sinners and to renew all of creation. And unlike the other gospel narratives, Mark is the only one to describe the heavens being torn open. And this word torn open shows up one other time in Mark. And it's in Mark 15, 38. After Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And I don't think this is coincidence. I believe that Mark is connecting the two events. He's revealing that God first came to sinners as the heavens were torn open. And with Christ's substitutionary death, the temple curtain, which signified man's separation from God, was torn so that all who believe in this one one Lord and Savior, all who believe would have full access to God. And as the Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove, we see that this is a sign, this is an affirmation that the Spirit would be with Jesus, the Son of God, as he carried out the Father's will. But the affirmation doesn't stop there. We also see God the Father's testimony about Jesus. And this affirmation, it's a combination of two Old Testament passages. Psalm 2, 7 I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And Isaiah 42, 1, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. God the Father is interpreting for us who these passages are pointing to. Jesus is the Son of God in Psalm 2. Jesus is the servant, upon, a servant of God upon whom the Spirit rests from Isaiah 42. The servant who will ultimately suffer in the place of sinners. And we see once again God following through on his promises. God is following through on his promises. And it's important to know that the loving relationship between God the Father and God the Son, it didn't start after the baptism. God's affectionate words toward Jesus, it's an affirmation of the relationship that always existed, of this eternal loving relationship that always existed. So in these first 11 verses, we see that every character, every character, they affirm that Jesus, who has come into the world, is indeed God. Mark the author, Isaiah, John the Baptist, God the Father, and God the Spirit. Jesus is God. But it would be wise for us to pause and think, why is it so important that Jesus is God? Why is it so important that Jesus is God? I want to address a very dangerous false teaching that is prevalent today. And I share this out of great concern because I have friends that are very deep in it. And I also wonder if there are some of you who may even believe it without knowing. For the past couple decades, there has been a movement known as the New Apostolic Reformation. And one source 
describes the NAR in the following way. It emphasizes experience over scripture, mysticism over doctrine, and modern-day apostles over the plain text of the Bible. Of particular distinction in the NAR are the role and power of spiritual leaders and miracle workers, the reception of new revelations from God, an overemphasis on spiritual warfare, and a pursuit of cultural and political control in society. The seeking of signs and wonder in the NAR is always accompanied by blatantly false doctrine. Now, I want to be very clear. I'm not speaking out against the gifts of the Spirit. But what I am speaking out against is a foundational belief that is very dangerous, that characterizes this movement. And it's the belief that Jesus completely emptied himself of his divine nature while on earth to show humans what we are capable of doing if we live by faith. In other words, Jesus did his miracles as a man in right relationship with God and not as God. And since Jesus wasn't God when he did signs and wonders, we can do them too. And this dangerous teaching, it comes from a very twisted interpretation of Christ emptying himself in Philippians 2. But what we see in today's passage is that Mark, he teaches the exact opposite. Jesus' authority, it cannot be separated from his identity as God. Jesus was truly man, truly God. And never once, you will never find it in the Bible, that Jesus laid aside his divine nature and ceased to be God. I've once heard it was subtraction by addition. Humbly adding humanity to his divinity. And the reason why this is so important, the reason why it is so important that Jesus is truly God, it's this. If Jesus is stripped of his divine nature, the gospel is stripped of his power to save sinners. If Jesus, if we strip him of his divine nature, the very news that saves us, it's stripped of its power. One theologian writes that Jesus' divine nature gave an infinite value to his human nature so that he could suffer and die for many sinners at the same time. So when Jesus humbly gave up his life on the cross in obedience to his Father's will, he didn't go as a mere man. Because a mere man could not be worthy enough to pay for all the sins of God's people. Jesus, he had to be truly God. He had to be truly divine so that he could fully satisfy God's perfect wrath and secure for every believer true righteousness and life through his sacrifice. And there's no one other than God himself no one other than God himself could deal with the wrath that we so deserve. That's why this teaching is so important. That's why the church has to be united. This is not a secondary issue. We have to be united on this teaching because Mark is establishing right from the beginning that Jesus is divine, that he is God. And as he does this, he doesn't seek to establish this merely for head knowledge. He's writing this 
ultimately so that all would look to Jesus and listen to him. That all would look to Jesus and listen to him. I'm not sure how the doctors might respond to this, but when I was a child, I remember getting my ears cleaned out by my dad. Uh, We didn't go to a medical professional. It was just my dad and his ear pick, right? And every now and then, I would lay down, rest my head on his lap, and he would clean out my ear, right? Pretty cute, right? Not anymore. It doesn't happen anymore. I remember one night telling my dad, hey, I have difficulty hearing in this one ear. So we did our usual routine. My dad turned the light on. He grabbed his ear pick. He's like, put your head on my lap. And what he found deep in my ear canal was a little piece of paper, right? Kids are weird. No one knows how that got there, right? But it was there. And once he pulled it out, I was like, oh, I could hear much better, right? Maranatha, my concern when it comes to looking to Jesus, the Son of God, my concern when it comes to listening to him, my concern is that we have a lot of hindrances, It could be an all-encompassing pursuit for the things of this world that's masked under seemingly Christian behavior and talk. It could be a habitual pattern of sin in your life that you'd rather let linger than put to death. It could be a long season of suffering that you're trying to endure, but you're trying to endure through your own strength. And this list, it's more than mere paper in our ears. It's a hardening of our hearts. And as our hearts begin to harden, it becomes a breeding ground for pride. It becomes a breeding ground for self-reliance apart from God. So my encouragement to you is to look to Jesus and listen. But as I give this encouragement to you, I also recognize that many of you may equate the command to listen with heavy-handedness with a list, list of tasks to complete. Not knowing that there is this deep-rooted attitude of works righteousness. Where you hear this listen, this command to listen, and you just think, oh, God is just a mere taskmaster. And while, yes, we are called to listen and obey God's commands, Christ's commands, It's not because our Lord is heavy-handed. It's not so that we could check off a to-do list and to gain his favor. We listen, we obey, because we have a Savior and Lord who came, who graciously laid down his life on our behalf. Galatians 2.20, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But I also want to encourage you to not only to listen to Christ's commands, but also listen to every promise that Christ has secured for us. We often forget to listen to his promises. We only consider his commands. And I wonder how many of you look at Christ's promises and you brush them off, believing it's not true for you. And I want to tell you, church, 
with great confidence. And it's not based on anything that I can find within myself. It's based on God's word, which is true, which is living, which is active. That for every one of us in Christ, every promise of God find their yes in Jesus. This is how Paul encouraged the Corinthian church, and this remains true for us today. Christ Jesus has secured every promise of God for us through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. So look to him and listen. Look to him and listen. To close, hear this encouragement from Pastor Charles Spurgeon. My hope lives not because I am not a sinner, but because I am a sinner for whom Christ died. My trust is not that I am holy, but that being unholy, he is my righteousness. My faith rests not upon what I am or shall be or feel or know, but in who Christ is and what he has done and in what he is doing now for me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Maranatha, the one who came, Christ Jesus, he is truly God. Mark, the author, the prophet, God the Father, God the Spirit, testify to this. So church, I encourage you, look to this God. Look to the Son of God, Jesus. Look to him, delight in him. And as a church, let's strive to listen, not only to every command, but also to the promises that he has secured for us. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, we ask that you would help us. Help us to see that Jesus is truly God. He is truly Lord. And we ask that your spirit would help us now. That as we hear from your word, that it, wouldn't be, it would not be just mere head knowledge. But Lord, we ask that your spirit would help it to really do a great work in our hearts that as we look to Christ, as we seek to listen to Christ, will we not just look to his commands, but will we also look to his promises, promises that have been secured for every one of us who trust in him. Please help us, Lord. We thank you once again that Christ indeed has come. We thank you that Christ has secured for us an eternal salvation. And we thank you once again that we can look forward to the time when Christ Jesus, your son, will return. We thank you, Lord. We lift up these things in Jesus' name. Amen.